Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Down to earth. Yes, we're going to tell you just about that right now. In the new book, Down to Earth, by Pastor Tom Hughes, we're guided through some amazing stories. Now, almost a third of Jesus' teaching were stories. How well do you know these parables? How well do you know the greatest stories ever told? Do you know the secret to be a stronger prayer life? The joy of spending someone else's money to overcome anxiety or or learn to forgive or how to unsure your happiness. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff. How to have a stronger prayer life, how to overcome anxiety or learning to forgive or to ensure your unhappiness. You know what you can do to learn about that? You can read the new book by Pastor Tom Hughes. Down to Earth. Exactly. Now, these are the greatest stories ever told because they have the power to change the world. In fact, they already have, but they are not done. Now these down-to-earth stories have come to change your world to learn more at downtoearthbook.com. All right, girls. Thanks for that. Who's on the podcast today, girls? Grandpa! Grandpa! Yeah, what do you think? What should we talk to Grandpa about in the podcast? Um, I guess the book that you were talking about. Maybe that's a good idea. Adam, do you have any ideas what we should talk about? No? You got one? What is it, Avery? Pizza. Pizza. What should we ask Grandpa oh, I about? Know one. Yes, ice cream, donuts. Yeah, I feel like the podcast that you guys are describing is a food podcast, and I don't really talk about food enough on the podcast. But I think these are great ideas that we'll consider. We can start a new podcast called Avery and Adeline's Foodcast. It'll be a lot food. better than Daddy. Oh, the, <laughs> f- the yeah. Foodcast. Yeah, that's a that's great a, name. That is a good name. A lot better than Daddy. Hi, Avery and Adeline. There you go. All right, girls. Thank you for coming on the podcast bye see ya bye all right well as we just noted to the podcast it is norsworthy with norsworthy back on again my dad welcome back to the podcast dad well thank you yeah how you been long time no see well, on the podcast. i just woke up from a nap so hopefully i won't put your listeners to sleep yeah let's uh let's hope that doesn't happen uh now, so dad you are uh living that retired life these days and uh, you've always been a prodigious podcast listener, but now you might even have more time to listen to podcasts. Do you find yourself hitting the old podcast a little bit more often these days? Uh, not really more, but I do do it very regularly. Okay, tell me the podcast that you listen to, Dad. Which ones? Yeah. Oh, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, of course, is my number one podcast. Mm-hmm. I do listen to it every Monday morning. That's, mm-hmm. At least that's my typical schedule. Um, is it the first one you listen to? Because that's a big test of which podcast do you listen to first on Monday morning. 99% of the time. Oh, what is the 1% of the time? Oh, it's your nemesis. Is it Pete Enns? Pete Enns. Oh, goodness. That one, the Bible for normal people. Bible for normal people. That's a good podcast. When you think of normal people, I don't think Pete Enns is the first person that comes to mind. Uh, He's not. No. He's he's not. He is very intelligent. Mm -hmm. He is speaking to a wide audience, but um, a a targeted group. Mm -hmm. And I think I fall into that group, not age-wise, but I'm very interested in the Bible. He, He does... A lot of studies. He uh, has some really good scholars. Okay, Dad, enough promoting his podcast. Oh, yeah. We, calm it down. Okay, so you listen to But Pete all Ends. of that, he learned from you. He did learn from me. He, that's, he that's was right. on your podcast at least three times, wasn't he, before he even Something started like that. His? And, and I got him a trip out to Pepperdine uh, 
you know, I connected him with uh, the old friends at Harbor. That's and, right. Uh, the Bible lectures out there. He was so, a big uh, speaker I mean, out there. One he got time. himself out there, but I just did some introductions. <laughs> but uh, so you listen to that one. What other podcasts are you listening to? Um, I used to listen to the Deconstructionist con- uh, podcast. The reason I say used to, I haven't seen a new episode in a couple of months. Did you uh, deconstruct your interest in that <laughs> podcast? No. No, not really. I'll be here all day. But um, okay, so but it's have, a it's a good one. It's you, a good one. You know the podcaster that you actually have met and spent time with, Annie F. Downs. Oh, yeah. You, you, you met, know, I've never listened to her podcast. You think that? How do you think that makes her feel? <laughs> I don't think she knows that I don't until now. Until now, now she knows that. Yeah, Didn't she? Yeah. I need to get that on my radar. You should. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, compared to like Pete Enns is a nerd. And Annie's not a nerd, so she has like a different feel. It's right. uh, that sounds fun. It's more fun. It's more sevenish, more exciting. Uh, I mean, she, she literally is a normal person. So she she really could have a podcast entitled "The Bible for Normal People" because she's not a Harvard PhD, right? But right. you know, whatever. Yeah. So you listen to those, uh, and okay, so you've been listening to the podcast, my podcast, true, Very uh, true. Over the last couple months, as you think about the different guests, different episodes, mm. think about uh, some of the guests that you've got. Now, obviously, I've gotten the phone call on Monday afternoon saying, oh, I want to talk to you about this one. Right. But right. when you think of over the last couple of months, what are the ones that stand out to you? You don't know? You don't, you're giving me the shake off. You don't want to do that question? Is this a sign of the... You know what happens to the... No, this is the sign retirement of... Brain? There's a psychological principle that you remember the content, but you forget the speaker. Okay, well... So do you content. rattle off a few of the speakers? I, I don't know book titles. And nah, so, yeah. And so that's I, right. You have... Yes. And so it's not a bad deal. But we could... Like the content, I can we can piecemeal who that was. Okay, well, let's talk a few of them. Oh, well, you got to tell me which ones... Any content that's... You You got nothing. You're giving me... <laughs> you know, Dad, if you do the, the throat swipe thing, that is a... Uh, technical foul in uh, basketball and on the oh. podcast it's also technical foul because people can't see you saying no i don't want to do this conversation you don't want to no <laughs> sorry my bad we can cut this out i'm not going to but we could <laughs> if i wanted to okay here's the conversations i remember us having okay i remember now, you, you wanting to discuss uh family systems we, there's a podcast no i don't know there's a podcast that discussed family systems with a guy mm. named Steve Cuss, who mm. is a friend from Down Under, and uh, we had a conversation about this, and one of the things that stood out to me is your background, it, your, your life's work is in psychology, and family systems comes from marriage and family therapy. Now, some people would think that's basically the same thing, but there actually is, would it be fair to say, two different schools of thought on how to approach issues? Is that somewhat fair? Yes, that's uh, that's a good way of saying it, that psychology has been around for uh, many more years than marriage and family. Oh, take that. So take that. Yeah. And it's gone through all sorts of different variations. And uh, part of that, what what I'm going to end up saying is, but there are certain psychologists that have focused on the family. Uh, Early on, Alfred Adler, who was a neo-Freudian, I'm sorry. Yeah, we know Adler. He was the guy who, uh, he's uh, introduced the idea of inferior complex. Very he's probably, good. You've listened Is he well. Austrian? 
Yes, he is. Very, mm. you, <laughs> no, you are good, Luke. Very Favorite good. Yes, yes. Right here. But he is actually the one that in the field of psychology, I would recognize as being the taking a systemic approach. He talks about the psychological role within the family. Okay, so systemic approach. Typically, people would think of psychology as dealing with the individual person, whereas Correct. marriage and family is going, let's look at the entire system that they're in. That's right. But Adler is a psychologist who said, let's look at the system as well. Exactly. And he did this many years before marriage and the family really started carrying the banner for a systemic approach. The idea of a systemic approach makes a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. And what Steve Cuss was doing is he was applying it to uh, leadership environments of, uh, it's not just families that kind of function as these systems, but it's you know, churches, the leadership of a church, uh, a board, um, you know, w- whatever sort of group that they all kind of function not as individuals in a room, but as one room functioning as a whole. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to me, he brought out both the intrapersonal dynamic of it as well as the interpersonal dynamic. So we're What's look- the difference? Well, the interpersonal has to do what you're bringing to the table. So the leadership, the membership that make up the group, they are responding not just to what they're hearing on the surface, but what is under the surface. It's the question under the question that they're yeah. dealing with. Whereas the group, there is a dynamic that uh, there's all sorts of concepts that have come out of that that talk about in what ways groups are effective and in what group limitation group have probably the most common one that i've heard you say on your podcast or one of your podcasters uh is groupthink janice irving came up with a concept where she saw how uh because they want to form a consensus the consensus bias uh they can make decisions uh, to try to solve a solution that's impossible I think oftentimes uh, they use even the Bay of Pigs, uh, yeah, yeah. the invasion that really wasn't. There are many flaws in the thinking, and it goes all the way back to a concept of group think. Yeah, so the idea is that we could end up like uh, JFK, who was yep. the president then, yep. and uh, he's in a room. And everyone is just going along with the idea, even if individual, everyone's like, I don't know if I feel great about this, but because there's a desire for consensus, everyone wants to be on the same page. Uh, all that is an example that when you function in a group, there becomes uh, a, a collective conscience that is functioning uh, within everyone's individual thought process, that, that we're all part of that. And so, okay, so I found that to be a really helpful conversation, and also the idea of that everyone has a question underneath the question, that everyone is in some ways we're, we're responding to our own issues and how we interact in a room. So if there's 10 of us in a room and we're discussing the Bay of Pigs, all of us are bringing our own different issues into our conversation and our thought about that. And I think that's Erwin Freeman's stuff about the well-differentiated leader is that the leader is able to, to process what you're bringing into the table and to not let every issue become this is about me and this is me working through... Uh, you know, my childhood wounds and my father who ignored me and I, I was You are being hypothetical. Hypothetical. Of course, it, yes. it all goes back to that time <laughs> I was playing soccer and you fell asleep while you're doing some some of your work 
in a van. And, and that's when your first delusions started uh, manifesting themselves. Didn't that, you say you made several goals? That during literally that happened. Of time I got I in asleep? trouble. I scored multiple goals. You in know, the I game. didn't see you score any of those that's goals. You were Nobody asleep, on that, your you, team you even asleep. mentioned this. I remember getting in trouble riding home after telling you I'd scored goals. And you're like, no, you didn't. I was asleep in the van. How come the final score was lower than the number of scores you reported that you made? I think you're projecting, Dad. <laughs> this is wish fulfillment, Dad. You wish that <laughs> yes, happened. Of course I'm joking. Of but, course I'm joking. But yes, this part is, of that was true, wasn't it? I th- did fall asleep you did. during uh, the break. and uh, It's called halftime. Yes, called a halftime. And then when it started, apparently you scored This several. might be why I hate soccer so much. Because <laughs> yeah. it all goes back to being rejected by my own father. And that's, that's what I'm projecting every time I say soccer's the worst. It's really what I'm saying is... Dad, why don't you love me? And so having a podcast is an overcompensation. Now you're trying to avoid putting your foot in your mouth. I see what you did there. Yeah, that was a little bit of a reach. Avoiding. But, but I am a seventh, so naturally I will... Go along with me. Uh, uh, no, I, I will yeah. avoid pain, and so I will do whatever I can to avoid that. Well, going back to what we were talking about, another thing that was emphasized in that podcast was a lot of cognitive uh, psychology, that mm-hmm. talking about the idea. It's not so much about the external world as to how we experience it or how we end up feeling, but it's what we think and believe about a particular event that really mm-hmm. determines our thoughts and beliefs. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really very important. When yeah, and, and you've done that with me. So my first job out of school didn't end ideally for me um was not an ideal situation and i remember one of the first things you said to me is as i was describing how it happened and you were very intentional about making sure that the language i used to describe what happened was accurate because uh to use different language will shape how i look back on what what took place and it shapes how i you know remember and that memory stays with me in one way or a different way based on how we describe it Mm. Well, and yeah, and it's not that I necessarily knew what objective reality was, but I do know that there are certain terms that are very uh, extreme, absolutist, which was another kind of concept that was brought out in that podcast. He didn't use the word absolutist, but those should, oughts, and musts, those things that do not allow for a, a different narrative, uh, maybe a more... Um, kind, gentle, uh, uh, even helpful narrative, if you lock it into a very absolute way of thinking about it, then there's no excuses. It's, I've always got to be a certain way. Everything should or must work out a certain way. And when you start having that kind of restrictive narrative, uh, it creates all sorts of emotional difficulties. And we bring this on ourselves with the the stories that we tell about ourselves is that we create these ab, absolutist is that the word absolute that's yeah that's ellis's terminology oh ellis good old we, ellis we don't want to take ellis's terminology cuz he might hear the podcast and get upset and leave a bad review and we all know good people leave good reviews for the podcast and so we don't want to make him a bad person so yeah thank you for quoting him <laughs> but so th- the takeaway is there is value, there is significance that we give to our stories in the way that we tell them about ourselves. Well, it, it, I'm going to put a plug in for your book that about expectations. As a, as a child, 
we only have certain ways that we can think about certain issues. And with those limitations, we do make things sound absolutist. And depending on your stage of development, a child who is in a very egocentric stage, which is normal, it's not unhealthy, it's natural, but if they are at the center of the way they think about things, something occurs and it's bad, they think, oh, then it's my fault. And as a result, they can have a lifelong consequence of dealing with guilt or issues related to, to guilt and shame. I'm not sure the oh the plug is about expectations. My expectations, book is about expectations. yeah. So, but when you said egocentric, I thought oh you're going to describe the book as written by someone <laughs> who's very egocentric. the The example of that is often when uh, a child experiences the divorce of their parents. The yes. first question is, what did I do to cause this? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so the work that you would do uh, as a psychologist in that in, in in that room would be, okay, you didn't cause this. You didn't. This wasn't your fault. Trying to help them cognitively describe a more accurate picture of the future so that they don't care or an accurate picture of what took place in the past with their parents so that in the future they don't carry that unnecessary shame and well the way i would tweak that is it's not the same thing as positive thinking to me what you said could have been interpreted as i'm biased toward the client And I'm always going to try to reframe it in a very positive outlook. Sometimes, no, they may have been kind of like some children, and they create difficulties for their parents. I'm kind of joking here and looking at you. I like the joke that you made. Oh, you're not going to say that's about your brother, are you? Yes. (laughs) I thought you were going to go there. I appreciate the joke. (laughs) Thank you for making it sound like I almost caused you guys to get a divorce. That makes me feel good. But because you were so good, we stayed together. That's the only (laughs) reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, but no, as a psychologist, I'm going to look at it, try to look at it as objectively or as help to look at it as many different ways as possible. And since I don't know what objective reality is for every one of my clients, I'm going to help them see the alternatives and then say, what is going to be self-defeating? If you continue to think about it this way, here's how it's going to create difficulties for you. If there are things you've done wrong, then we got to work on some uh, forgiveness kinds of issues. But on the other hand, if they're framing it in very self-defeating ways, uh, there are ways that it can be replaced with self-enhancing ways. What is the detriment for someone to reframe everything as positive? And so you said you could just do positive thinking and say, well, okay, here's the good thing about what you did, and everything is always positive. What what is the long-term detriment when someone is always retelling the stories in a positive light about themselves? Uh, all of a sudden you've got someone who has very grandiose, uh, unrealistic views, and they, are, and they become very out of touch with reality. They're not going to be able to make healthy connections, not only with the world, but the people around them. Yeah, yeah. And they it, become more and more detached from themselves. Yeah, it, it seems that there is a weakness when you can't take ownership of short Comings that happen in your life that affect others and losses and negative experiences that you have. And this is, uh, there's a book by uh, Jim Collins called uh, Good to Great. And he talks about uh, good leaders that when there is a success, they look out the window. And when there's Mm. a failure, they look in the mirror. And Mm. I think that's the, I think the benefit of that imagery is that when there are losses, when when there are setbacks, when there are failures, 
to take inventory of your own response, like of your own part of that failure, and look at your own responsibility for what what those things happen. And if you don't, then you just become this victim who blames everything on everyone else, and yeah, it just spirals out of control. That's not good for anyone. Yeah, it's a great analogy, and if the mirror represents you're always looking at it from your perspective, you're only seeing it from your perspective by being self-aware, it allows you to turn that mirror into a window and you can now start seeing reality more accurately. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the things that's uh, helped many of my listeners, myself included, uh, see the world more accurately, see themselves more accurately, is the Enneagram. And I know that you've been, uh, haven't you been listening to some Enneagram person who's not one of my people? Yeah, there there is another podcast uh, called The Real Enneagram. The Real Enneagram. Yeah. Okay, so why listen to The Real Enneagram instead of like Suzanne Stabile's or Ian Kron's? Like those are... Suzanne and Ian, I like both of them. And in fact, uh, your mom and I have uh, gotten their book Mm -hmm. and we have read parts of it together, shared that back Mm -hmm. and forth. Did mom just read the stuff about Enneagram 8s and then move on? (laughs) <laughs> no. <laughs> Is there anything else other than chapters? Yeah, no. that, that's the only one. So, no. Uh, and then Joseph Howell is the guy who, he's a clinical psychologist. He's probably around my age. Mm-hmm. And your mom actually is the one who uh, identified this individual. She was going, ah, you know, I'm not sure you're going to be reading that much about the Enneagram unless I can get somebody who's a psychologist. And so, but she okay, was right. It, it it actually helped me to get interested. So I started listening to the podcast. Uh, there are some things about it that it's for a different group than what I'm interested in. But when he speaks, he has an awful lot to say about it. Uh, and he has a book out, and we got the book, and we've read parts of it and shared it uh, mm-hmm. together. And and uh, so, yeah, I've spent a little bit of time reading about it. So, uh, so the weirdest thing that you've shared with me, I think this is from Hal, is the idea that your true self is actually not your number, but the number that you go to in health. And so he talks about the difference of, what is it? Persona and essence, or pers- the essence, okay. the 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 ego type and the essence. Okay, describe those. Ego type is, yeah, and I think he is really good about saying that this is kind of the way that he started studying it. Uh, I think it, it was the early '80s when he first started reading about this. He rattles off some of the people that he believes were uh, some of the early. Uh, advocates of the Enneagram. And so he, he recognizes there's a variety of different ways of, of looking at it. And I think he would call himself more looking at it from a classical perspective. And I'm not sure what, what authors would fall into that category. But I do like the idea of th- that, like Susan and Ian, uh, the way I understand it is, okay, we've got an, we've got a ego type. And so ego type is your number. Is your number. And By the way, let's get, just let's take a, a let's number a, hypothetically. Hold on, like, hold on. Oh, okay. Ego. That comes from the world of psychology. Freud obviously is the one who put ego out into the, the lexicon. In psychology. In psychology. Yeah, he's, he didn't really develop the terminology per se, but he did apply it to psychology. He's the one who... Okay, t- let's give us the definition of what ego is, though. 
Okay, well, briefly. He oh, now that made it too hard. I can't do that. Thirty seconds. <laughs> Go. Uh, your psychic estate is made up of an id, an ego, and a super ego. The id is the part you're like born the super with. Super ego. It seems like yeah. the best one. The ego is the part that emerges somewhere around six to nine months in that first year, and it becomes referred to as the executor of your psychic estate. So it controls the, the demands of the id, which is the, the uh, biological urges and drives and wishes that occur later in life, somewhere around the age of five, six, your superego develops, which is your ego ideal, what you want to be, and your conscience, what you shouldn't be doing. So the ego controls those demands along with the demands of reality. Okay, got it. All right, so that's your ego. Did your, we get it in 30 seconds? Uh, close. close enough. Close uh, okay. So your ego number is the number that most people would say, this is my Enneagram number. I'm, right. According to how? I'm an ego seven? Right, right. Okay. But Well, it actually, yeah. You, your ego. So an, another thing is the ego is described from how as being a defensive position. Now, it can have strengths and it can have weaknesses, and that's why I think he is saying it's not your true essence. And your essence, um, it has to do with going back to childhood before you ever experience a a trauma, a pain, a lack, and that's that uninhibited part of who you are, and um, that's where you go to in your moments of strength. And that's your that's your your best version. That's your truest. That's what uh, Merton would call your true self, probably. Your true self, your essence. That's yeah. correct. And so I, I'm on board with the idea that we have a false self, um, uh, an old self. To use the the Pauline language, my my, my old self has been crucified with Christ. Um, personality. The word comes from the Greek word to for mask or personu or something like that means uh, persona like, to see part of. Mm-hmm. And so your personality, your false self is like this armor that we that we we have uh and so the goal of healthy self-knowledge or spiritual work or spiritual maturity is to figure out your your truest essence of who god created you to be uh and so Hal is arguing that actually in health you go to your truest self and i well now again i use that terminology and i that that might i might have misspoke that he would he would say that you actually your arrow points in a certain direction it's a, a uh, and that's the defensive side of it so if you're try if that's the point of the arrow trying to go to the back end of the arrow is actually where your essence lies so if a person were a 7 hypothetically speaking i think a 5 is w- in health would be in health well, and and he would even say, as seen by you know all the books that I read for the podcast, I'm such a healthy person. But even a seven has a healthy side to it. There, yeah, there yeah. are strengths about sevens, and there are weaknesses about seven, and even a five, there are weaknesses and strengths. And that's why he would say this ego emerges during during trauma, during pain, during lack, and that becomes a way that it filters the world to try to make up for the lack, the hurt, the pain, and it covers up your essence. And so if you start 
off life as a five, then the downward side of that, where you are, how you're trying to deal with the demands of of the pain, mm -hmm. uh, that takes you to the seven. So that lightening, uh, avoiding uh, em emotional kinds of issues, um, yeah. trying to get along with people, those could be defenses of the ego that are trying to protect the true essence. Interesting. Okay, now the big idea, I, I'm fully for that we put on this persona to get through life. When things get challenging, we learn to take qualities um, from, from different parts of the Enneagram. And I think that's basic Enneagram knowledge, is that in health or unhealth and integration, disintegration, we, we have these numbers that we go to in strength and weakness. Uh, the idea that like our truer self isn't our number... I don't know. That's that's a little bit out there for me. I don't know if I'm going to buy it. But the big idea that we all have this persona that we put on to get through life, I, I think that's pretty obvious. And I think the invitation for all spirituality is to figure out how, how do you get back to your to your truest self or who God truly wants you to be. Because I think the story of of um, I, I think the Christian story says that it starts in Genesis one, not Genesis three. A lot of you know, modern Christian theology starts with the fall and that everything is, you know, response to our sin. And, you know, Genesis 3 is how the story really begins, is that there's sin and, and there's a problem and we fall apart. And, you know, how do we get over sin? I, I think that the real story of Christianity is that, like, there is an idyllic beginning. And the story of Christianity is that it starts in a garden, Genesis 1, and then it ends in this new city, in, in the fulfillment of what the garden is is in its best sense. In the same way that that Jesus, after the resurrection, is confused for gardener, I think it's that can be a metaphor for what what Jesus is doing. Like this is the new garden that we're trying to hmm. live into, and I think that's what the resurrected Jesus is pointing all of us to experience. All that to say, how that's kind of interesting. I don't know. I don't know. What I think yeah, about it. yeah. But well. I one of the things I do like about Hal is when he's talking about essence, he's saying that that actually God is the ultimate essence, that we are part of God. We are created out of God. And that I'm I'm very comfortable with that idea. If if I'm going to throw out my little narrative of part of what's happening in the fall is by chapter three, this is really the first time. People are acting on their self-will. They're mm -hmm. acting out, going on their own. They're alienating themselves from God in that sense and acting on their own. Mm -hmm. So maybe cosmically that is the first um, uh, ego that is emerging, that we have this collective tendency to, well, I'm going to blame somebody else for what, has happened here. I think it's interesting. I don't think God is being prescriptive. Uh, I think he's being predictive of saying, oh, now you're going to have enmity. You're going to have division. You're going to have conflict. And it's going to be intrapersonal as well as interpersonal. It's going to be with the with uh, Satan. It's going to be with other people. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the alienation that comes from the fall itself. Yeah. Okay, the other day I uh, <laughs> asked you what you're doing. You were working on a Bible class, and I said, you want to see? And I said, sure. And you sent me 26 pages. No, it was 33. Uh, 33. <laughs> I, I mean, 
let's not pretend like I read all 26. I mean, it could have been 100, and I still would not have read more than I did already. Uh, that's excessive, Dad. That seems like uh, that's a sign of unhealth that you're like doing that much. But here's a transition. Uh, the fall, Genesis 3, there will be enmity between man and, and, and woman, like that you will desire for him and uh, he will rule over you. And so Genesis 3 describes like the, the fracture of the relationship between Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve are originally like, they're, they're together. The, the word that's actually used, uh, etzer, for helper, is a word, you want to guess, where in the Jewish scriptures, that word is only used to describe one other person. You know who that is, Dad? Yep, God. And it's probably 16 times. And of that, there most of the time, it's a warrior. It's a warrior. Yeah, exactly. And so, the, initially, like God is this one who stands against, that God is this helper, God is... This, so, it's not this a weak, frail... Yeah, yeah. And so, in, in the same way that Adam and Eve are... Uh, you wouldn't say that God is subservient to man, even though... God is described as the helper of Israel. Um, Correct. The modern word for helper seems subservient. But the ideal is like that in the same way that, that God helps humanity, woman helps man. And so that, like this beautiful symbiosis between Adam and Eve, the fall disrupts that. <clears throat> and then so you're, I ask you what you're teaching, and you have 33 pages on biblical metaphors and or just metaphor in general. I, obviously, no, I didn't it, read it all. That I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't read it all. <laughs> well, uh, at least you you didn't act like a seven. If you really did go back to a five, you were very dead. I'm not going to read all 33 pages of this. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It it was there, it's there, a, yeah, it's no. about metaphors and that apparently there's a there are 44 different metaphors that are used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures to describe God, and there is 50 in the New Testament that describe God. And so you've mentioned one of them. Which is? The warrior. The warrior. The helper. The helper, helper in yeah. that sense. Yeah. It, the word warrior and helper, they don't even seem like they're they're connected in the English language. But in well, the Hebrew language, it's, it's the same idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's part of, I think, uh, we have to understand what a metaphor is. Uh, Or some would say a metaphor. A metaphor, yes, if you were named... That's... I wouldn't say that, but yeah, that's true. Um, So how do you think we... As we... In the world of spirituality, the language of Jesus is parables and poetry, and it's... It's as if we like to reside in the instruction manual, give me the most literal interpretation, and Jesus is saying... Uh, come up here to the world of metaphors and parables, and uh, I will always be speaking, but not everyone will be understanding. And that Jesus spoke in, spoke in ways that, that doesn't always uh, doesn't always read as literal as we'd like it to. Yeah, and I don't think he's trying to hide. I think he's trying to reveal himself. It's to me, it's the difference between concrete and abstract, that God is so beyond the concrete that we have to come up with words that have meanings in a culture, a metaphor. Uh, It already has a meaning, and warrior sounds negative. It might sound negative to some people in the English language. If you're, you know, there are some people that would know, that would resonate very well. Uh, but the but you already have a word that has a certain meaning to it, and you're trying to apply it to something that has limited meaning, or or we yeah. have limited understanding to. Yeah, and 
spirituality is always going to be spoken of in hints and innuendos and sounds and sights, but it, it can't it can't come down to the concrete level that that we would want to live in. But sometimes the way that we approach scripture is we're not willing to let ourselves be interrogated by what scripture is trying to do for us. We instead mm-hmm. want to be the one interrogating it. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. always, um, yeah, it, it always. Yeah. I like the way that it's, it, some have said <coughs> when we're reading the Bible, we are not trying to master it. We're trying to let it master us. Yeah, that sounds right. And so the way we do that is that we reduce it into 33 pages on metaphors that we can read through and have it all uh, in a synopsis that we can understand in a Bible class. How many of those pages did you get through in the Bible class that you were teaching? Uh, I'm going to be abstract and say all of them. The the background <laughs> within my comments, they were all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so How many of those points were going to be m- many less than what you and I talk about, but probably only three or four? Mm-hmm. Uh, side note, if you didn't know, my dad's a five, and that's stereotypical five behavior right there to uh, research the snot out of uh, a Bible class, which lasted 45 minutes, and you had probably four hours of content. So good for you, Dad. Uh, I, I respect that. I mean, I think you you need to be prepared, and, and obviously you were. So, well done. Okay, okay. Uh, Can we say something else about metaphors? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, once we understand what a metaphor is, and we start to apply it to God, I think... Uh, I think it's really uh, interesting that if you look at uh, the metaphors that are used for God, both Old and New Testament, it comes down to the most common father and king. Okay. Okay. Why not mother and queen? Uh, Are you doing that rhetorically or do you want me to give you an answer? I'll be glad to answer it. We can go either way. Uh, I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is that it sure would seem out of character in those days to use queen as the dominant metaphor since queen in that culture was uh, not as powerful as king. Exactly. Right? Yeah, there were certain limitations. It would be, it would be like, uh, again, now I'm just kind of going off the cuff here, but I'm trying to pull in a sports metaphor since you brought up Rick Ashley. Uh, <laughs> uh if you were trying to compare God to a football team, would you call him Cleveland Browns? Would you call him the Dallas Cowboys or the Eagles? Uh, well, uh, ironically, many people prognosticate that the Browns have one of the youngest and most talented teams. So going forward, maybe you would go with the Browns. There you but, go. Uh, the point is definitely heard that you would look at a team that has the most success. And that's how, again, a metaphor is grabbing what you can see to describe what you can't Correct. see. Correct. And what so, you, so in the whole process, would you then conclude that God then must be a football team? doesn't matter which metaphor, which team you actually use, but you're using a football team as the metaphor, and you're trying to get the best description of that football team that represents the characteristics and the qualities mm-hmm. of God. So it's a false assumption to assume God is a, fo- a football player or a football team. And... But you see characteristics of God in that small facet of what that football team is. That's correct. That's correct. And so between father and mother, 
in Hebrew scripture, father had a much stronger, powerful mm-hmm. view. And so therefore, it somehow it might appear more inferior, even though there are many scriptures that describe God as a mother, uh, as a chick, as a hen who draws mm-hmm. in. There, there are uh, places where God is described in that way. But the, I think the important, one of the important points that I want to make about it is uh, in my lifetime, in my professional lifetime, I've tried to figure out, okay, so we do talk about God primarily from a masculine metaphor. So therefore, is God masculine? And based on what I'm reading, what I'm thinking right now is, no, this does not mean that God is masculine. It means those masculine metaphors were better representative of the characteristics and qualities of God at the time. Now, let me make another move that a metaphor can become a dead metaphor meaning it loses its ability to make the connection between the two, and that can actually lead to idolatry if we hold on to certain ways that we think about God. Now, see, I told you all that studying about it's, metaphors, it's I'd eventually out. get it, to yeah, use it, so it's coming out. And you're taking it out of my listeners. I'm so taking it. I'm that. sorry. No, but that's true. I mean, one of the great examples in the world of church is, uh, you know, the old church that uh, had no air conditioning because their building 100 years ago didn't have it and so they always put a white tablecloth over the sacraments and so people start to see every week you come in church you sit down you see the tablecloth covering the sacraments white tablecloth it's always there and eventually they get air conditioning they can shut the windows flies aren't coming in and one day they dis- decide oh let's remove the tablecloth and someone goes oh no no you can't do that because that that's a sacred you're supposed to have the white that's tablecloth right. over the, the sacraments because blah 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 and next thing you know, the, the tablecloth becomes canonized as part of your liturgy, when really it's just to keep the flies out of the grape juice. And that happens over and over again. And unless you have the lens that says, hey, we're talking in metaphors, we're talking in, in hints and nuance and subtlety and poetry to describe what we can't see, then what we end up doing is taking what's in front of us and canonizing it. And that's not the point. I mean, it's always the point to God, which is transcendent. And there's a reason Old Testament Scripture talks about how you shouldn't have idols, because idols always minimize what God is. That's and in right. some ways, we can do that with metaphors. Is that right. we can? That's exactly what I mean by a dead metaphor. Yeah, very good, well said. Did you use the idolatry language in those 33 pages? Oh, I did. Not having idols? Right, right. I did mention about idols. Yeah. I was just checking, because I, I obviously read that part. Actually, I didn't read that part. But um, that's good. That's good. Okay, so you're, uh, you're nerding down on podcasts, as <laughs> usual. You're, uh, you're writing 33-page uh, notes for a Bible class. And um, it sounds like this retirement life is working out pretty well for you. It is. It is. It's uh, a very interesting phase of life. One of the things that really stands out to me is uh, the concept of energy, that we have a certain level of energy, and, you know, it seemed like when I was a young man, it was un- unlimited. I mean, there were times where I'd go into exhaustion, and, mm-hmm. and, but I would rebound and just keep going. Now, it's the kind of thing where you, I have to consciously uh, try to manage it so that, I, uh, and what it does, the benefit of that, it helps me to identify what are my priorities. Mm-hmm. So if I am getting up and working on the house and doing things, tasks just to keep life moving along, 
that tells me that I'm, I'm living a pretty superficial life. On the other hand, uh, when I'm able to meet with your mom in the morning and we read together and we talk together in, in, a, in a way in which we're trying to encourage each other to, to be co-heirs in this process of the kingdom, and we pray uh, asking God to help us to increase our awareness of his presence, that makes life really worth living. Hmm. That's good, Dad. I like it. That sounds fancy. You know what it sounds a whole lot better than? What's that? My friend Jonathan Stormont ranking his friends. <laughs> Yours sounds far oh, more, like, mature than... Have you heard him talk about that on the podcast? Ranking? Oh, I've yeah. heard you and Jonathan talk about it. He Aren't you, like, number five, five or six? Yeah. Five. How do yeah. you feel about... How do you feel about your son being ranked number five? Jonathan, come on now. He is number one. Yes. Number one. <laughs> number one in your ears, number one in your hearts. Newsworthy and noiseworthy for life. Okay, there it is. Uh, that's the podcast. Uh, any final words? No. You thank you for the opportunity to get together. Now, the rest of the day, can we actually just talk? Yeah, I kind of yeah, do this. We can't just say, oh, no, we got to save that for save the podcast. For the podcast. I do do that. And, yeah, I, I have said that a few times, and I apologize. Hey, I think for the month of July... I'm going to uh, re-air maybe one or two old podcasts right. that I've uh, done that have been really meaningful to me, and uh, maybe add some commentary around them. Um, can you think of one off the top of your head that you go, this is one that needs to be re-aired? As someone who's probably listened to more podcasts than anyone else, I have one podcast that I'm definitely going to post. Which one is that? It's uh, the two-part episode with... Richard Rohr. No. Actually, it's Richard Beck, Beck and Robbie B, Robbie Bell. Oh, yeah. That one where Jan and Beck was hanging out in the background. Right. And uh, I had a, I, I did a, a, an interview with a friend from Australia, and they're talking about podcasting and, and the podcast. And, and they asked the question, which one episode stands out? And I go, honestly, there's one that stood out. And she's obviously a listener, because before I could even finish it, she goes, I bet it was that one with mm. Beck and Bell. And that is one of the ones that stand out in my mind. Yeah. That, that would be... I get that one. There's a couple that I might like. Uh, uh, one of the early Richard Rohr ones, probably. Yeah. Um, I thought about. I guess you might have heard about uh, Richard's friend uh, Rachel Held Evans. Yes. Who passed away? Yes. Um, I think people should go back and listen to her episode. Probably not with me because she has friends that are like Pete Enns is a far closer friend with Rachel than, than I was, and so maybe go back if you want to remember her. Go back and listen to one with mm-hmm. a different podcast host who knows her better i think that's a better picture i mean not that that my episode wasn't good but i think that'll give a better picture of her so um we got that one for sure we're going to do the double part that two-parter and um let me know if you think of another one okay do you have one not not offhand but okay all right i got i got some ideas roar might be that tom wright might be one there's a lot of ones that are really good um but this one was good hopefully people like it hope so newsworthy with newsworthy Parts. How many think you, we've done? Four? Four five? or five, yeah. Four or five. All right, here we go. Best one yet. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>